0: Volume the second, chapter nine of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the second, chapter nine. The first plan that had suggested itself to me was to go to the nearest public road, and take the earliest stage for London. There I believed I should be most safe from discovery if the vengeance of Mr. Falkland should prompt him to pursue me, and I did not doubt, among the multiplied resources of the metropolis, to find something which should suggest to me an eligible mode of disposing of my person and industry. I reserved Mr. Forrester in my arrangement, as a last resource, not to be called forth unless for immediate protection from the hand of persecution and power. I was destitute of that experience of the world which can alone render us fertile in resources, or enable us to institute a just comparison between the resources that offer themselves. I was like the fascinated animal that is seized with the most terrible apprehensions, at the same time that he is incapable of adequately considering for his own safety. The mode of my proceeding being digested I traced with a cheerful heart the unfrequented path it was now necessary for me to pursue. The night was gloomy, and it drizzled with rain. But these were circumstances I had scarcely the power to perceive. All was sunshine and joy within me. I hardly felt the ground. I repeated to myself a thousand times, I am free. What concern have I with danger and alarm? I feel that I am free. I feel that I will continue so. What power is able to hold in chains a mind ardent and determined? What power can cause that man to die, whose soul commands him to continue to live? I looked back with abhorrence to the subjection in which I had been held. I did not hate the author of my misfortunes. Truth and justice acquit me of that. I rather pitied the hard destiny to which he seemed condemned but I thought with unspeakable loathing of those errors, in consequence of which every man is fated to be, more or less, the tyrant or the slave. I was astonished at the folly of my species, that they did not rise up as one man, and shake off chains so ignominious, and misery so insupportable. So far as related to myself, I resolved, and this resolution has never been entirely forgotten by me, to hold myself disengaged from this odious scene, and never fill the part either of the oppressor or the sufferer. My mind continued in this enthusiastical state, full of confidence and accessible only to such a portion of fear as served rather to keep up a state of pleasurable emotion than to generate anguish and distress, during the whole of this nocturnal expedition. After a walk of 3 hours i arrived without accident at the village from which i hoped to have taken my passage for the metropolis at this early hour everything was quiet no sound of anything human saluted my ear it was with difficulty that i gained admittance into the yard of the inn where i found a single ostler taking care of some horses from him i received the unwelcome tidings that the coach was not expected till six o'clock in the morning of the day after to-morrow, its route through that town recurring only three times a week. This intelligence gave the first check to the rapturous inebriation by which my mind had been possessed from the moment I quitted the habitation of Mr. Falkland. The whole of my fortune in ready cash consisted of about eleven guineas, I had about fifty more that had fallen to me from the disposal of my property at the death of my father, but that was so vested as to preclude it from immediate use, and I even doubted whether it would not be found better ultimately to resign it than, by claiming it, to risk the furnishing a clue to what I most of all dreaded—the persecution of Mr. Falkland there was nothing I so ardently desired as the annihilation of all future intercourse between us, that he should not know there was such a person on the earth as myself, and that I should never more hear the repetition of a name which had been so fatal to my peace. Thus circumstanced, I conceived frugality to be an object by no means unworthy of my attention, unable as I was to prognosticate what discouragements and delays might prevent themselves to the accomplishments of my wishes, after my arrival in London. For this and other reasons I determined to adhere to my design of travelling by the stage, it only remaining for me to consider in what manner I should prevent the eventful delay of twenty-four hours from becoming, by any untoward event, a source of new calamity. It was by no means advisable to remain in the village where I now was during this interval, nor did I even think proper to employ it in proceeding on foot along the great road. I therefore decided upon making a circuit, the direction of which should seem at first extremely wide of my intended route, and then, suddenly taking a different inclination, should enable me to arrive, by the close of day, at a market-town twelve miles nearer to the metropolis. Having fixed the economy of the day, and persuaded myself that it was the best which, under the circumstances, could be adopted, I dismissed, for the most part, all further anxieties from my mind, and eagerly yielded myself up to the different amusements that arose. I rested and went forward at the impulse of the moment. At one time I reclined upon a bank immersed in contemplation, and at another exerted myself to analyze the prospects which succeeded each other. The haziness of the morning was followed by a spirit-stirring and beautiful day. With the ductility so characteristic of a youthful mind, I forgot the anguish which had lately been my continual guest, and occupied myself entirely in dreams of future novelty and felicity. I scarcely ever, in the whole course of my existence, "'spent a day of more various or exquisite gratification. "'It furnished a strong, and perhaps not an unsalutary contrast, "'to the terrors which had preceded, "'and the dreadful scenes that awaited me. "'In the evening I arrived at the place of my destination, "'and inquired for the inn at which the coach was accustomed to call. "'A circumstance, however, had previously excited my attention, "'and reproduced in me a state of alarm.' Though it was already dark before I reached the town, my observation had been attracted by a man, who passed me on horseback in the opposite direction, about half a mile on the other side of the town. There was an inquisitiveness in his gesture that I did not like, and as far as I could discern in his figure, I pronounced him an ill-looking man. He had not passed me more than two minutes before I heard the sound of a horse advancing slowly behind me. These circumstances impressed some degree of uneasy sensation upon my mind. I first mended my pace, and, this not appearing to answer the purpose, I afterwards loitered, that the horseman might pass me. He did so, and as I glanced at him, I thought I saw that it was the same man. He now put his horse into a trot and entered the town. I followed, and it was not long before I perceived him at the door of an alehouse drinking a mug of beer. This, however, the darkness prevented me from discovering, till I was in a manner upon him. I pushed forward, and saw him no more, till, as I entered the yard of the inn where I intended to sleep, the same man suddenly rode up to me, and asked if my name were Williams. This adventure, while it had been passing, expelled the gaiety of my mind and filled me with anxiety. The apprehension, however, that I felt appeared to me groundless. If I were pursued, I took it for granted it would be by some of Mr. Falkland's people, and not by a stranger. The darkness took from me some of the simplest expedients of precaution. I determined at least to proceed to the inn and make the necessary inquiries. I no sooner heard the sound of the horse as I entered the yard, and the question proposed to me by the rider then the dreadful certainty of what I feared instantly took possession of my mind. Every incident connected with my late, abhorred situation was calculated to impress me with the deepest alarm. My first thought was to betake myself to the fields, and trust to the swiftness of my flight for safety. But this was scarcely practicable. I remarked that my enemy was alone, and I believed that, man to man, I might reasonably hope to get the better of him, either by the firmness of my determination or the subtlety of my invention. Thus resolved, I replied in an impetuous and peremptory tone that I was the man he took me for, adding, I guess your errand, but it is to no purpose. You come to conduct me back to Falkland House, but no force shall ever drag me to that place alive, I have not taken my resolution without strong reasons, and all the world shall not persuade me to alter it. I am an Englishman, and it is the privilege of an Englishman to be sole judge and master of his own actions. "'You are in the devil of a hurry,' replied the man, to guess my intentions and tell your own. "'But your guess is right, and mayhap you may have reason to be thankful that my errand is not something worse.' Sure enough, the squire expects you. But I have a letter, and when you have read that, I suppose you will come off a little of your stoutness. If that does not answer, it will then be time to think what is to be done next. Thus saying, he gave me his letter, which was from Mr. Forrester, whom, as he told me, he had left at Mr. Falkland's house. I went into a room of the inn for the purpose of reading it, and was followed by the bearer. The letter was as follows, Williams, my brother Falkland has sent the bearer in pursuit of you. He expects that, if found, you will return with him. I expect it too. It is of the utmost consequence to your future honour and character. After reading these lines, if you are a villain and a rascal, you will perhaps endeavour to fly. If your conscience tells you you are innocent. You will, out of all doubt, come back. Show me, then, whether I have been your dupe, and whether I was won over by your seeming ingenuousness, have suffered myself to be made the tool of a designing knave. If you come, I pledge myself that, if you clear your reputation, you shall not only be free to go wherever you please, but shall receive every assistance in my power to give. Remember, I engage for nothing further than that. VALENTINE FORRESTER. What a letter was this! To a mind like mine, glowing with the love of virtue, such an address was strong enough to draw the person to whom it was addressed from one end of the earth to the other. My mind was full of confidence and energy. I felt my own innocence, and was determined to assert it. I was willing to be driven out a fugitive. I even rejoiced in my escape and cheerfully went out into the world destitute of every provision, and depending for my future prospects, upon my own ingenuity. "'This much,' said I, "'Falkland, you may do. Dispose of me as you please with respect to the goods of fortune, but you shall neither make prize of my liberty, nor sully the whiteness of my name.' I repassed in my thoughts every memorable incident that had happened to me under his roof, I could recollect nothing except the affair of the mysterious trunk, out of which the shadow of a criminal accusation could be extorted. In that instance my conduct had been highly reprehensible, and I had never looked back upon it without remorse and self-condemnation. But I did not believe that it was of the nature of those actions which can be brought under legal censure. I could still less persuade myself that Mr. Falkland, who shuddered at the very possibility of detection, and who considered himself as completely in my power, would dare to bring forward a subject so closely connected with the internal agony of his soul. In a word, the more I reflected on the phrases of Mr. Forrester's billet, the less could I imagine the nature of those scenes to which they were to serve as a prelude." The inscrutableness, however, of the mystery they contained did not suffice to overwhelm my courage. My mind seemed to undergo an entire revolution. Timid and embarrassed as I had felt myself when I regarded Mr. Falkland as my clandestine and domestic foe, I now conceived that the case was entirely altered. "'Meet me,' said I, as an open accuser. "'If we must contend, let us contend in the face of day.' and then, unparalleled as your resources may be, I will not fear you. Innocence and guilt were, in my apprehension, the things in the whole world the most opposite to each other. I would not suffer myself to believe that the former could be confounded with the latter, unless the innocent man first allowed himself to be subdued in mind, before he was defrauded of the good opinion of mankind, Virtue rising superior to every calamity, defeating by a plain unvarnished tale all the stratagems of vice, and throwing back upon her adversary the confusion with which he had hoped to overwhelm her, was one of the favourite subjects of my youthful reveries. I determined never to prove an instrument of destruction to Mr. Falkland, but I was not less resolute to obtain justice to myself. THE ISSUE OF ALL THESE CONFIDENT HOPES I SHALL IMMEDIATELY HAVE OCCASION TO RELATE. IT WAS THUS WITH THE MOST GENEROUS AND UNDOUBTING SPIRIT THAT I RUSHED UPON IRRETRIEVABLE RUIN. "'Friend,' said I to the bearer, after a considerable interval of silence, "'you are right. "'This is indeed an extraordinary letter you have brought me. "'But it answers its purpose. "'I will certainly go with you now, whatever be the consequence.' No person shall ever impute blame to me, so long as I have it in my power to clear myself. I felt in the circumstances in which I was placed by Mr. Forrester's letter, not merely a willingness, but an alacrity and impatience to return. We procured a second horse. We proceeded on our journey in silence. My mind was occupied again in endeavouring to account for Mr. Forrester's letter— I knew the inflexibility and sternness of Mr. Falkland's mind in accomplishing the purposes he had at heart, but I also knew that every virtuous and magnanimous principle was congenial to his character. When we arrived, midnight was already past, and we were obliged to waken one of the servants to give us admittance. I found that Mr. Forrester had left a message for me, in consideration of the possibility of my arrival during the night— directing me immediately to go to bed, and to take care that I did not come weary and exhausted to the business of the following day. I endeavoured to take his advice, but my slumbers were unrefreshing and disturbed. I suffered, however, no reduction of courage. The singularity of my situation, my conjectures with respect to the present, my eagerness for the future, did not allow me to sink into a languid and inactive state." Next morning the first person I saw was Mr. Forrester. He told me that he did not yet know what Mr. Falkland had to allege against me, for that he had refused to know. He had arrived at the house of his brother by appointment on the preceding day to settle some indispensable business, his intention having been to depart the moment the business was finished, as he knew that conduct on his part would be most agreeable to Mr. Falkland. But he was no sooner come— then he found the whole house in confusion, the alarm of my elopement having been given a few hours before. Mr. Falkland had dispatched servants in all directions in pursuit of me, and the servant from the market-town arrived at the same moment with Mr. Forrester, with intelligence that a person answering the description he gave had been there very early in the morning, inquiring, respecting the stage to London.' Mr. Falkland seemed extremely disturbed at this information, and exclaimed on me with acrimony, as an unthankful and unnatural villain. Mr. Forster replied, "'Have more command of yourself, sir. Villain is a serious appellation, and must not be trifled with. Englishmen are free, and no man is to be charged with villainy because he changes one source of subsistence for another.' Mr. Falkland shook his head, and with a smile, expressive of acute sensibility, said, "'Brother, brother, you are the dupe of his art. I always considered him with an eye of suspicion, and was aware of his depravity. But I have just discovered—' "'Stop, sir,' interrupted Mr. Forrester. "'I own, I thought, that, in a moment of acrimony, "'you might be employing harsh epithets in a sort of random style.' but if you have a serious accusation to state, we must not be told of that till it is known whether the lad is within reach of a hearing. I am indifferent myself about the good opinion of others. It is what the world bestows and retracts with so little thought that I can make no account of its decision. But that does not authorise me lightly to entertain an ill opinion of another, THE SLENDEREST ALLOWANCE I THINK I CAN MAKE TO SUCH AS I consign TO BE THE EXAMPLE AND TERROR OF THEIR SPECIES IS THAT OF BEING HEARD IN THEIR OWN DEFENSE. IT IS A WISE PRINCIPLE THAT REQUIRES THE JUDGE TO COME INTO COURT UNINFORMED OF THE MERITS OF THE CAUSE HE IS TO TRY, AND TO THAT PRINCIPLE I AM DETERMINED TO CONFORM AS AN INDIVIDUAL. I SHALL ALWAYS THINK IT RIGHT TO BE SEVERE AND INFLEXIBLE IN MY TREATMENT OF OFFENDERS but the severity I exercise in the sequel must be accompanied with impartiality and caution in what is preliminary. While Mr. Forrester related to me these particulars, he observed me ready to break out into some of the expressions which the narrative suggested, but he would not suffer me to speak. "'No,' said he, "'I would not hear Mr. Falkland against you, and I cannot hear you in your defence. I come to you at present to speak, and not to hear. I thought it right to warn you of your danger, but I have nothing more to do now. Reserve what you have to say to the proper time. Make the best story you can for yourself. True, if truth, as I hope, will serve your purpose. But if not, the most plausible and ingenious you can invent. That is what self-defence requires from every man, where, As it always happens to a man upon his trial, he has the whole world against him, and has his own battle to fight against the world. Farewell, and God send you a good deliverance. If Mr. Falkland's accusation, whatever it be, shall appear premature, depend upon having me more zealously your friend than ever. If not, this is the last act of friendship you will ever receive from me. It may be believed that this address, so singular, so solemn, so big with conditional menace, did not greatly tend to encourage me. I was totally ignorant of the charge to be advanced against me, and not a little astonished, when it was in my power to be in the most formidable degree the accuser of Mr. Falkland, to find the principles of equity so completely reversed, as for the innocent but instructed individual to be the party accused, and suffering instead of having, as was natural, the real criminal at his mercy. I was still more astonished at the superhuman power Mr. Falkland seemed to possess, of bringing the object of his persecution within the sphere of his authority. A reflection attended with some check, to that eagerness and boldness of spirit, which now constituted the ruling passion of my mind. But this was no time for meditation. To the sufferer the course of events is taken out of his direction, and he is hurried along with an irresistible force, without finding it within the compass of his efforts to check their rapidity. I was allowed only a short time to recollect myself, when my trial commenced. I was conducted to the library, where I had passed so many happy and so many contemplative hours, and found there Mr. Forrester and three or four of the servants already assembled, in expectation of me and my accuser. Everything was calculated to suggest to me that I must trust only in the justice of the parties concerned, and had nothing to hope from their indulgence. Mr. Falkland entered at one door almost as soon as I entered at the other. End of chapter nine of volume the second.